Hi, and welcome back to the Mission Minded Podcast. I'm Jim. And I'm Mitch. It's good to be back, Jim. We just wrapped up another podcast I think everybody's going to really enjoy today. We did. We had Chris Flanders and a guy named Werner Mischke. Mm-hmm. Uh, they wrote a book or co-edited a book called Honor, Shame, and the Gospel. So we were discussing culture and the whole honor-shame dynamic and what that means for evangelism, for the gospel, and ultimately for the Great Commission around the world. Yeah, I think we all have a, a perspective that our culture, whatever that is, we're brought up in. Uh, we're here in Central Florida. I've lived here for most of my life, and you've lived in another part of the world. Uh, but the way we see things in our culture plays a way or plays a role in how we respond and react and even see the gospel and, and view the Bible. Right. And for me, growing up in Australia, I guess in a Western context, the honor shame dynamic um, or understanding of honor shame culture, my mind would go straight to, to Asian cultures. And I guess we talk a bit about that and how that potentially could be a misconception and honor shame is in that dynamic is in a lot of cultures and every culture so maybe just for fun here is there a a culture that you've been in that maybe gave you a little shock a little culture shock mitch i would probably probably say indonesia indonesia okay um so if you don't know indonesia's muslim majority it's actually um i think 96 percent muslim um and i had had interactions with Muslims growing up in Australia. Um, I guess the misconception that, yeah, all Muslims are evil um, is a misconception. It's not true. Uh, I had a great time in Indonesia, um, being in the culture, uh, meeting people, um, a lot of friendly people. Um, Yeah, and obviously a place that is really in need of Jesus and the gospel. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I could think back, one of the biggest, I guess, culture shocks or different perspectives was uh, my first international trip, and it was to the Philippines. Mm -hmm. And everything from the smell of diesel, the amount of people, uh, just to the amount of, it sounds weird, but the amount of flip-flops that are worn. Mm -hmm. It it was honestly impressive to see full-court basketball being played in flip-flops. And none of them broke? No oh no! That came out. Oh no! 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 And so, just, just, I didn't have a concept to understand all of that. And so, hmm. uh, I'm even thinking about you're, you're from Australia, mm-hmm. and coming to the U.S. So maybe even some of the U.S. culture shock. Was there anything that stood out? Yeah, I mean, there were things. Probably the the main thing was food. Okay. Americans. I mean, Australians love to eat, but Americans they they love to eat. Right. And well, you would if you were looking for the the home comfort food, you'd go to Outback Steakhouse, right? Uh, not no. no. Probably a meat pie would be my go-to in Australia. Okay. okay. Um, if you don't know what a meat pie is, look it up. It's yeah. a it's an Australian treasure. But um, but Outback is is it's American food. Okay. And one interesting thing, I grew up in a town maybe two hundred fifty thousand people, and we had places to eat out, but. Ocala, Florida is kind of eat out central. Yeah. You go down 200 here and there's probably 200 restaurants that you can go to. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So we have a, a team member who had some some people from another country come into town and wanted to give them the cultural experience of the Golden Corral. Have you been there? I have multiple times. 
Okay. It probably hasn't helped my waistline. It is an interesting place. It is. So it's yeah. all you can, and all you can eat buffet from steak to chocolate fountain to. I was actually there a couple of weeks ago with my wife and her, her dad. And you can eat as unhealthily as you want, but sure. you can also eat as healthily as you want. So it's actually a. Choose your, of, choose your own adventure there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it's actually a pretty good place to go. Well, hey, I'm sure everybody listening has their own cultural experiences. And as we uh, jump into this podcast, maybe think about how uh, that has played into the way that you share the gospel and the way that you see the world. Welcome to Mission Minded, the podcast where we explore outside the box thinking in carrying out Christ's great commission. On this week's episode, we are joined by Christopher Flanders and Werner Mischke. Now here's your host, Jim and Mitch. Hey guys, thanks for joining us today on the podcast. Good to be with you. Yeah, good to be here. And for those uh, who don't know you guys, Werner, would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. My name is Werner Mischke. I uh, serve with uh, a ministry called Mission One in Phoenix, Arizona. I've been with them since 1992, and I work in the area of developing training uh, ministries uh, resources, and uh, our our mission uh, works with uh, the global church in providing strategic uh, projects, uh, training resources, and providing relief uh, in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. So, uh, great to be great to be with you guys. Great to have you. Yeah. And Chris. Chris Flanders. I teach at Abilene Christian University in Abilene, Texas, which is tucked off in the middle of West Texas. I was uh, a missionary for about a total of 11 years in Thailand, most of that in the north, in and around Chiang Mai, where I uh, was engaged in church planting. And uh, I've been teaching here at ACU since 2005, teach missions and intercultural studies and uh, I'm really excited about the opportunity to talk about things that God's been leading me to emphasize the last many years, and um, thanks for having us on. And for those who might be listening, they wouldn't see the scholastic background. Both of you guys have some bookshelves that are pretty full behind you. Quite a few books. If anybody needs some books, email me. I, I've got many that I'd like to just get rid of, but... Speaking of books, you guys worked on a project together, the Honor, Shame, and the Gospel. And uh, would you mind maybe talking a little bit about how that project came to be and will be the subject of of what we're going to talk about today? Sure. Uh, In 2017, the Honor, Shame Network uh, convened a conference at Wheaton College, and it was the first Honor, Shame conference. We had about 285 people attending uh, who represented a hundred, approximately hundred different organizations. And we had, I think, 28 workshops. So the articles in this compendium are a collection of uh, works from the contributors uh, at that conference. So we have, I think, 15 articles uh, in here, plus an introduction that Chris and I wrote. And uh, so, yeah, that's uh, that's how it came together. Yeah, I recognize Steve Hawthorne as um, just wrapping up the Perspectives course. A lot of the team members at ITEC are. 
and uh, I'm sure uh, people would recognize some of the other authors and contributors as well. Yeah, as a, fa as a matter of fact, Steve Hawthorne was the very first person that uh, we invited to uh, speak at the, at the conference. And uh, I intentionally wanted him to speak on the honor and glory of Jesus Christ and the mission of God. And uh, so, yeah, that's what he, what's, what he presented. And it was an incredible, incredible presentation. Uh, in fact, it's, it's available on, on video on YouTube. Uh, and uh, you, can, you can also source that through the website honorshame.com. Okay, well, make sure we put that uh, link below and that through YouTube, it would be through the Honor Shame YouTube channel? Yes. Okay. Yeah, uh, I guess a question related to your book, Honor Shame and the Gospel. Um, for those who may not know, about the honor shame culture or dynamic um, that's found in cultures uh, could you give us i guess a description or an explanation of what what that actually is you know if you think about it <clears throat> honor and shame are an integral part of every culture mm. though different cultures throughout history and different cultures throughout the world today kind of lean into them or uh, emphasize them in ways that make them different. But honor and shame is actually a cultural dynamic that's present everywhere all the time. One of the reasons that that's the case is because honor itself is simply an acknowledgement of something that we consider virtuous or good, mm -hmm. right? Philosophically, you talk about the good, but whatever that is, uh, it could be moral virtue, it could be physical warrior battle virtue whatever you might sort of esteem and look to whenever you acknowledge that thing with a kind of a thumbs up culturally you're giving honor right you're you're recognizing you're honoring giving preference uh giving recognition and so that's just a normal part of all cultures you really can't get away from that the only way to actually get away from that completely would be to remove a culture's understanding of virtue and how you know you can't really do that so so every culture by default has that shame is um is really about falling short uh, we often associate shame with the kind of external forms of shame like uh you know losing face being embarrassed publicly and certainly those are a part of the shame experience but shame is really multi uh faceted and very dynamic you can be uh, you can feel shame or deeply shamed without any external audience because you know yourself to be inadequate in some way, right? Deep, deeply defective in some way. And uh, people throughout the world experience guilt and shame uh, uh, in terms of like um, moral deficiencies, infractions. Um, and so a lot of the scholarly writing is on how cultures do that differently. But bottom line is these these dynamics exist everywhere all the time. And uh, we often maybe change the words, change the terms to describe them. But they're actually a, even a part of our own culture today. Yeah, I think perhaps a common misconception or even a naivety. And I've definitely been there um, of thinking that on a shame culture and dynamic is only kind of exclusive for Asian cultures. But as you're saying, it's almost inherent in all cultures um, it really is and and the reason it, it's no fault of of any lay person because mm -hmm. actually in the early 20th century there were a lot of writers uh, prominent anthropologists like margaret mead and ruth benedict some of these very popular writers who 
who put this idea out there that Asian cultures like Japan, like Thailand, and Middle Eastern cultures mm -hmm. were shame cultures or they were honor cultures. And they did that to distinguish it from what they considered more guilt-based cultures, which was a way of saying cultures that are normed more by certain notions of law, you know, legal notions. Um, and it's, it is certainly true that Western experiences of honor and shame are different than say the Japanese versions of honor and shame. There's, there's no doubt that there are clear differences, but to label one an honor culture or a shame culture as if really what that does is it masks the fact that we also have all kinds of complex and powerful forms of honor and shame in our own culture. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, people, we do often use that term a little bit sloppily, uh, you know, the, the honor cultures in the Middle East, for example. Um, but I think it's best for us to to move towards a place where we really talk more about the honor or shame dynamics in each culture. That's a, probably a better way to do it. So what would be some examples of that? What role does that honor-shame dynamic play in cultures around the world? Well, you're, to, to answer that, you almost have to you know, answer, well, it's the answer is as different as cultures are different. I was literally getting donuts two days ago from one of my classes and I was listening to NPR uh, on my radio and they were, there was a, a feature that they were doing on um, shame uh, among union activists. And I didn't know this story, but I've got notes for it now. You know, the whole notion of scabs. Yeah. When, when you have a picket line, a strike and you've got non-union workers coming across the, the the picket line to take jobs and this was the story of these union workers who would go and shame publicly the uh, uh employers who were hiring these uh replacement workers they also talked about the nfl when this happened uh, several years ago and the point was that the how the owners of these businesses ultimately relented and broke down because they couldn't stand the bad publicity the public shame that the union organizers were bringing by calling them bad names and by putting signs up in front of their uh, businesses about how pathetic and awful and terrible and shameful their actions were. And so the whole point of this 30-minute uh, segment was shame works. And this was in Chicago and Philadelphia that they were talking about in the late 20th century. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's just one example of how that works. It, and, you know, it works differently in every culture. Some cultures put a higher premium, almost like a social currency on public um, reputation. And there are subcultures in the United States where that is the case, right? That your reputation is an actual form of, of currency. It's so important and you do everything that you can to maintain that public face. And if it's, if it's impacted negatively, if it's polluted, if, it, if you lose it, well, that's really going to impact you negatively and your ability to do stuff. And now there are other parts of our cultures where that isn't important. Um, there are cultures where uh, the loss of public face is a, is a greater personal um, pain than it is in other cultures. And, uh, and these dynamics are, can be so different from culture to culture to culture. that it's really impossible to talk about it universally, but um but just those examples maybe are a couple of ways to think about how how these things work. We um, we honor people regularly. I work at a university. We give awards. 
give right now it's the end of the semester and we're highlighting all these students who have these amazing grades and they're going on to do wonderful things and they're getting uh, recognition of all kinds. They're getting ready for commencement, which I tell my students is an anthropological fiesta of honorification, right? Of recognition, of giving honor, esteem. We all wear special clothes. I mean, it's just dripping with honor, the whole thing, special music, special events special meals, banquets, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so th these are kind of just uh, normal parts of our North American academic culture. Um, and so, you know, you just go look at every single culture kind of with the eyes of honor exegesis, understanding how honor works in every culture. You can come up with um, different things uh, in, in so many different configurations. You know, one thing I might add to what you said, Chris, is that um, there are a broad variety of honor-shame dynamics that can be identified. And one of the things that I did uh, in my first book, uh, The Global Gospel, is I identified nine different dynamics of honor and shame that have been uh, written about by scholars. And then I showed how these things are represented in, in scripture, in the Old and New Testament. So for example, the love of honor, uh, you know, the passion for honor and glory, that is considered an honor-shame dynamic. Uh, two sources of honor, the fact that there's ascribed honor and achieved honor. Uh, the image of limited good, the idea that there's only so much good to go around and when someone gains something of that limited good, let's say it's money or it's land or it's honor, then by definition, someone else has less. So when you have this idea of limited good, it fuels conflict. Uh, then there's a dynamic called challenge and repost, which is another form of, of uh, it's like a fencing term, challenge, uh, repost is a, a fencing term uh, and that, that's about honor competition and, and conflict. Then there's the concept of face. This is a very prominent dynamic, um, uh, especially in East Asia, um, but it's true in various ways all over the world. Then there's body language, like right hand and feet. Feet are shameful. The right hand represents honor. Patronage of you know, the, the patron and the client. Uh, this is a, a, a an honor-shame dynamic that exists uh, it today all over the world, and it certainly existed in the Roman Empire. The whole family dynamic of name and kinship and blood, there's lots of honor connotations connected to that. Purity uh, concepts uh, of inclusion and exclusion, uh, you know, clean and unclean in the Bible is loaded with honor-shame dynamics. So these are, these are nine of the dynamics I identify in, in um, the global gospel, uh, but that's not all of them. I mean, even hospitality itself is an honor-shame dynamic, which is highly celebrated in many cultures uh, as a way of showing honor. So these things exist in multiple facets, in multiple ways, uh, all, all over the world. You were mentioning, and, go ahead. And, and I might add in my book is I show that these nine different dynamics of honor, shame overlap with verses 
concerning the atonement of Christ and the gospel of Christ so that they can be used to articulate, you know, the blessing of salvation and what Christ has done for us uh, in fresh ways. Yeah, that's really interesting. There's so many complexities, I guess, that I didn't even realize to the honor-shame dynamic and culture. Um, mm -hmm. And I guess that's a good segue, what you just mentioned, because I wanted to kind of delve into what the honor and shame dynamic means for the gospel and uh, for taking the gospel to different cultures where, um, yeah, this honor dynamic, honor-shame dynamic is in play. One of the things that I think uh, contemporary English-speaking believers miss, and it's a translational issue, um, we're, we're all fans, rightly so, of the glory of God. But this idea of glory, and I first started keying in on this way back reading C.S. Lewis, who, who in uh, The Weight of Glory, one of his uh, essays, talked about the fact that if you ask the average church member what glory is, they don't know <laughs> what a glory is, except to say, and this is Lewis, something like a, a giant divine light bulb, you know, shiny effulgence that maybe is glory. And certainly th that emanation of uh, physical glory does appear throughout uh, scripture as, as a type of, uh, of, you know, effect of glory. But glory itself is just simply honor. In fact, in Greek, there's no distinction. And that, that's a translational issue. So when we say, you know, the glory of God, the, the glory of God in the face of Christ, really we're, we're talking about the honor, God's, uh, the way I translate it, or I encourage students to think about it in a contemporary uh, kind of term, like if I were to paraphrase it, is God's awesomeness, right? What what makes God so awesome? Well, that's his honor. The things about God that are just amazing and, and honorable, awesome, glorious. And so right there, um, there's, there's a kind of attack into the gospel because, as you all know, the gospel is so much about God's glory, right? revealing his glory through the the ministry and the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and the ascension and um, which is itself about glory and authority and power so uh, what I found is in my ministry in Thailand I was the one who was deficient in this way that I had read my Bible and had thought about the gospel without this lens uh, and that it was my experience in Thai culture and therefore my Thai friends who began to help me see these things in, in new ways. Um, and so in one sense, much of the non-Western or the majority world has got a leg up on us Western readers because we've um, hidden or de-emphasized these concepts in certain ways that are actually right there in Scripture. And, uh, and so uh, a part of the answer to your question is, is to just go back to Scripture and kind of read it anew with the lens that um, we might be able to, lenses we could put on from the perspective of some of these other cultures that we're working in. And we actually can see things differently um, that are right there in Scripture. Yeah, you know, that's a great point, Chris. I think as, as Westerners, we tend to equate honor with pride. And so we, we kind of automatically attach a negative ethical 
connotation to honor. And uh, there's actually in scripture a, um, you know, support for that negative ethical connotation. For example, at the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, the people came together and said, let us make a name for ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. And so we look at that and we say, well, they wanted to, you know, increase their reputation. They wanted to increase their, their honor. Uh, there was a, a, a prideful orientation uh, to, to what they were doing. And so we say, yeah, honor, that kind of selfish honor, you know, that's, that is, that is sinful. That is wrong. That is contrary to the will of God. But then a few verses later in Genesis 12, uh, one through three, where we have the call of Abraham, uh, God says to Abraham, you know, leave your father and mother, go to a country that I will show you. And, uh, and then he says, I will bless you. And then he says, which is a little echo from Genesis 11. He says, I will make your name great. Hmm. So in Genesis 11, God is, is judging the longing for name greatness, right? The longing for honor, he's judging it. But here in Genesis 12, uh, he's telling Abraham, I will make your name great. So what we see is that God is not against human honor as long as he himself is the source of that honor. When we pursue honor according to, you know, selfish uh, pursuits, uh, selfish desires, then that is corrupt. Uh, and so we see this, this longing for honor and glory in, in the Bible in many respects, and it's there by, by design. God has given us a, a longing for honor. We see this in, in the opening chapter of, of Genesis where he's, we're made in the image of God and we're given dominion over, over the earth. And that is a regal term. It's, it's like we have this kingly regal identity as, as humans. And uh, sometimes people are shocked to find out in, in, for example, in Romans, this is relative to this idea of seeking honor and glory, which we implicitly say, oh, we wouldn't want to seek honor and glory. But there in Romans chapter two, I think it's verse seven, it says to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. So, you know, Paul's writing to the glory-laden, the glory-passionate uh, Romans, right? And he's, in a way, he's endorsing the pursuit of honor and glory. Now, he doesn't, you know, tell exactly how that ought to be in Christ here in this verse, but there is a kind of pursuit for honor and glory in scripture that is applauded, that is recommended. And, uh, you know, as long as that's in Christ and God is the source of that, uh, it's something that can be, that should, we should consider healthy. Uh, this, this would probably be more towards uh, Chris and his experience on the, the mission field. Can you share a story of maybe how that change in perspective uh, could have impacted the way you saw evangelism and how it could relate to the honor-shame aspects of culture? Right. 
you know, it was really powerful in my own ministry. Like I said, I was involved in church planning, which meant that a lot of my work, especially early on, as you know, in the early stages of planning church, uh, most church planners are doing a lot of evangelism. And, and I, I did a lot of evangelism early on, especially. And, and one of the things that I found was that I, I had been trained in many ways or approaches of, of bringing the good news, talking about Christ, um, some of the more traditional ones, you know, Romans Road and, and other approaches to, to highlight the human need for, for God and, and the solution that comes to us through Jesus. And, I, and what I found was um, that often my explanations were, it was not that they could not be understood. You know, people understood it, but it was more of a, an understanding that wasn't as deeply compelling and, and didn't resonate as deeply with their experiences. When I made a shift to begin to use more honor-laden approaches, and, and by that I mean things like, for example, I began to really lean deeply into uh, some of the parables of Christ, particularly uh, the parable of the father and the two sons. And, and uh, we also kind of created a, a gospel narrative that involved a, a story about you know, a royal uh, ruler, a king, and his subjects, and, and framed it in terms of honor and shame uh, relational terms. And, and what we found after we began to make the shift is uh, not that, that the world began to knock down our doors to embrace Jesus, but that those who did would say things to us like, you know, I kind of got it before, but now I feel it at a different level. That there was a resonance with their own experiences that actually, for many people, led to greater allegiance, uh, a greater depth of heartfelt love for God, because they they now felt at a new level something that they weren't fully experiencing. Um, when we would emphasize a, a little bit, what I would say, more of a legal framework, uh, the law of God. Um, our sin resulting in human guilt. And there is a challenge even in the Thai language to adequately talk about guilt. I mean, there are words that are that mean mistake or, or wrong, but they don't carry with it the same historical notions that like in English, for example, guilt and guiltiness might carry for us. So uh, when we made those shifts, we did that in uh, both kind of informally in my own ministry, but also in some of our official training materials, what we saw was a greater resonance where people were like, okay, now, you know, I kind of under, it's like, you know, it's like the end of Job. I'd heard about you with my ears, <laughs> but now I really see it in a new way. And, and I, we had believers coming to us frequently saying, I, I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing Christ. I'm experiencing my life in God in, in new ways because of, uh, of understanding it this way. I think even in um, Western culture, um, there can be, uh, I guess, the concept of sin, um, provided you're not breaking the law, there is, in secular society, not a concept of sin. Um, how how can the honor-shame dynamic play into that in terms of our evangelism, maybe for people who are listening, thinking about, how can I share the gospel with someone who doesn't have a concept of sin um, and bring in the, the honor-shame dynamic into that conversation 
Yeah, Mitch, that's a really good question. Very good I question. think that, uh, you know, in the last, you know, since World War II, the whole concept of the, you know, civil law being equated with the law of God mm -hmm. has really come under question. Um, and uh, because laws can be unjust. And, you know, I know, for example, the, the impact that uh, World War II had, uh, my family being of German heritage, my father was in, uh, was a German soldier in World War II, and I struggled with a lot of these issues of, you know, how did this horrible stuff happen in Germany, the Holocaust and all. Uh, and one of the one of the reasons was the Germans people said, well, I was just doing my job. You know, I was following the law. Mm -hmm. And so the question about unjust law has undermined uh, evangelism, which is based on a legal framework. Um, I wouldn't say this is true for everybody, but for for substantial numbers, I think this could be true. And this has introduced, uh, is part of why we, we live in this postmodern world now. I think that with a gospel framework that is more balanced in emphasizing both law and, uh, or both guilt and shame, uh, we get into the relational dynamics of, of sin. You know, there's, a, there's an interesting verse in uh, Romans chapter 2 uh, where, where Paul, who is speaking to the Jews in this section, he says, you who dishonor, you who boast in the law, you who boast in the law. Well, who is he speaking to? He's speaking to, of course, the Jews because they're boasting in uh, having the law of God, being the elect people of God, you know, Israel and so on. Uh, having received the Ten Commandments and so on. He says, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. And the emphasis there in the, in the Greek is on dishonoring God. And breaking God's laws is, is really indicated as one way of dishonoring God. The force there is on the dishonoring of God as um, as the violation. And Chris, you mentioned the prodigal son story earlier. You know, did, did the younger son break any laws? You know, <laughs> what, the, what the younger son did, and the older son as well, they both dishonored the father. And so when we understand sin as dishonoring God, it opens up new avenues for understanding human brokenness and understanding, you know, the human condition as, as uh, uh, you know, something more complex than the violation of a legal code or mm -hmm. the, the violation of God's moral edicts, for example. So um, the relational nature of sin is more clear in an honor-shame framework usually than 
I would say then in a, in a legal framework. Right. So does that answer your question, Mitch? Is that helpful? Yeah, I think so. Um, I guess the whole idea of falling short of God's glory, it's almost like we're falling short of his honor. Um, that's exactly right. Yeah, and in fact, that's, and... that's the shift that I would say we made in talking about sin mm-hmm. was that we, we moved from a, 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 a more abstract, legal, almost philosophical. That's probably too harsh. I don't know that we were you know, working just in a philosophical world, but to a more personal falling short of God's honor. God is this honorable uh, being who's pure virtue and pure love. And uh, we, we've blown it, right? We have, uh, we've done all of these things that have dropped us far below what God's expectations were us were for us. And so because of that, uh, that's what sin is. And when we talked about that with our, our Thai friends, this sense of moral obligation, right? That God gave us all of these things. He gave us the breath of life. He gave us existence. He gave us all the blessings that we enjoy. And, um, and yet we fail to honor him appropriately. For Thai people, they feel that deep sense of shame, of, of failing to honor someone who loves you so much that they've given so much for you, like their parents, for mm-hmm. example. Um, it's, a, it's the classic uh, Nathan coming to David. And remember when the Lord speaks to David through Nathan, essentially, he kind of sounds like a parent who says, I gave you this, and I gave you this, and I gave you this, and this is how you repay me. You did this. Well, let me tell you, that's, that's not working. And, and that sort of framework, Thai people felt, felt that. Uh, whereas when we were working with a more Western legal notion, they kind of got it because they have laws. You know, they have rules, but it, it doesn't uh, doesn't get them like the parable of the son and the two sons and the father. That gets many Thai people when they read it. And, and we can say, this is exactly the human condition before God. This is what sin is. Sin is, yes, breaking God's laws, but it's also breaking God's heart. And it's failing to return to God the honor that he deserves uh, and, and expects from us. So... It's good. We yeah, we actually developed a a little booklet. It's called the Father's Love Gospel Booklet, mm-hmm. and it's been translated into Spanish, Arabic, and a few other languages. And we have a ministry partner in in the Middle East w- who translated this from the English into Arabic, and they they had it printed there. And uh, this booklet became so well received because you know, it's about a family. It's about two sons. You know, there's a big surprise in the story, you know, where you would think the father might want to kill the younger son for being so shameful, you know, and bringing such dishonor on the family. But instead, you know, the father, the father embraces the son and kisses him and celebrates uh, the fact that he has returned with a huge banquet and puts a ring on his finger and, you know, gives him uh, his his uh, special robe and so on. He really restores his honor. And and uh, uh, a little over, I guess it was about a year and a half ago now, they said, yeah, we want to print 100,000 of these. Can you help us with the funding for that? And, you know, we did over time help them with that because they found that this way of articulating the gospel uh, so resonated with the people. 
and and where could people find that booklet if they were wanting to get a copy of it uh you can go to uh fathers the fathers love uh, booklet.org or just just enter do a search for the fathers love booklet sure we'll put that in the in the description so people can take a look at that yep and uh the the book honor shame in the gospel is out there on amazon amazon for those interested we'll have to uh put the the link in the show notes as well and I don't yeah, and, and may I just add that it's published by William Carey Library or William Carey Publishing. And uh, so if you can buy it from William Carey Publishing, they, uh, you know, it's a Christian ministry and they earn more uh, from uh, the, they, they, they have a bigger profit when you buy it from them directly than when you buy the book uh, from Amazon. So we'll be sure to put just, that link uh, in there for that. Yeah. Thing. Yeah good to know all right good stuff well any closing thoughts as we wrap up today you know in a question that you had included in some of your uh, the emails that got me thinking was this idea of a do-over hmm. <laughs> and uh you know, we all wish for those we learn from our mistakes and 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 those can be blessings but i, I wish that i would have done this kind of thing much earlier in my ministry i i was uh, a very competent speaker of the Thai language, very competent, not to brag or boast, but I really worked hard and I had a, a, a God-given gift to communicate and I lived incarnationally, worked with Thais and among Thais, but it was only really towards the second half and even the very end of my time in Thailand where I began to, I, I guess I would say, get fluent in these things and I, not that the earlier efforts that I made were wasted because God's spirit was at work in all of that, <clears throat> but I, I feel like I would have connected so much more uh, effectively and, and deeply if I had known and had these frameworks to, to work earlier. Um, and one of the things that I'm doing right now with my time and energy is Books like this, books like what Werner mentioned, the uh, the Father's Love booklet, and resources from the Honor Shame Network, honorshame.com, is to get as much of this out there uh, to people on the ground who are doing the good work, the you know, and tilling soil and and watering and and fertilizing and all the different things that they're doing in God's in God's garden and kingdom. Um, because I, I found that they really made a huge difference, and and I wish that I could have had to do over to go do that, you know, more closer to day one than, than to day 85 or whenever it was that I was, you know, doing that. Well, thanks for sharing, Chris. Werner, any final thoughts as we wrap up today? Yeah, I would, I would add uh, one thing, and that is the most valuable work of preparation for the mission field is not to understand the mission field. Rather, I propose that it is to understand the cultural context of uh, the, the Bible, uh, to exegete, if you will, Bible cultures. If you can uh, do some of the, the study of what the social context was like in Bible times, in the ancient Near East, in first century uh, 
Palestine and the Roman Empire, if you can understand the honor-shame dynamics into which the scriptures were originally written, you will see naturally many more overlaps with your missional context than if you do not understand those uh, social dynamics, if you do not understand those honor-shame dynamics. So um, there are resources out there. You know, my book, The Global Gospel, is just one of them. There are numerous resources out there. The website honorshame.com is the really the sort of the clearinghouse for evangelicals in this arena of uh, honor, shame, and the gospel. And um, so, yeah, that that's my recommendation. <laughs> yeah, appreciate that. Thanks for sharing. Well, I think that's, um, yeah, time to wrap up, I guess. Uh, it's been great having you guys on the podcast. Um, I've learned a lot, and I'm sure our viewers and listeners are going to learn a whole lot as well and um, we'll be praying that yeah what they glean from the conversation god will use in in mighty ways so we appreciate you guys a whole lot thank you thank you all thank for you giving for us time us. yeah it's been our joy to be with you thank you thank you for joining us for this week's episode of mission minded for more information on today's topic and show notes please visit our website itechusa.org Mission-Minded Podcast is produced by iTech. The goal of this podcast is to inspire conversations about Great Commission participation. The views, organizations, and individuals represented, interviewed, and discussed on the podcast do not necessarily represent an official position or formal partnerships with iTech.